again, everyone, and welcome to the So House Therapy Podcast. This is a podcast that demystifies, debunks, and destigmatizes what happens in the therapy space. I'm your host, Karen Conlon, and I am so happy to have this guest on today. This is such an important topic and it's something that people really need to know more about so that it becomes a much more welcoming and potentially healing place rather than a scary or stigmatizing place to be. And that is psychiatry. So today we are going to be speaking with Dr. Claire Brandon. Dr. Claire Brandon is a dual board certified psychiatrist. She is a board certified in both treating adults and consultation liaison psychiatry. Claire, you tell me if I got that all right, because you have a bunch of credentials and I want to make sure that I've got that all right. And you have also your own podcast, which is called the GI psychiatrist, where you explore brain gut issues and all things GI psychiatry. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, first of all. Sure, of course. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's great to be here and to chat with you. Always, always feel inspired after we talk. <laughs> so yes, you got that all right. I'm an adult psychiatrist. I'm boarded in adult general psychiatry. And I also did a fellowship specializing in what's called consultation liaison psychiatry. It's working with patients that have medical illnesses that either cause psychiatric issues or uh, they just have a comorbidity with a psychiatric issue. So we need to make sure we're treating that and being mindful about their medical or chronic illness. So I do a ton of work in all different types of medical illnesses, whether it's neurological, so MS patients, migraine patients, epilepsy, working with gastrointestinal patients, which is, of course, my sort of sub-sub specialization is what I say. And that is what my podcast is in. And a lot of the work that I focus in in gastrointestinal psychiatry with inflammatory bowel, IBS, abdominal pain that's not clear of the source of it, the etiology of it. I spread myself across quite a few different places. And I have my private practice that I see those patients in for therapy and medication. I'm excited to talk with you a bit more about medical health and psychiatric health and what that's all about. First, I'd love to really maybe start with what is the difference between psychiatry and therapy? Because I don't know if you get this question, but I know that there's always this confusion about psychiatrists versus psychologists and who's a therapist and who's not a therapist and clinical psychologist. And I know that depending on states and the laws, what you can do differs. But, you know, since we're in New York state where we're recording from, let's talk about New York state and what that looks like and what are the differences? So let's start with what I am. So I'm a psychiatrist. I went to medical school for four years, like just like any surgeon, family medicine doctor, of the same background, did all the same stuff. I have an MD. So psychiatrists could be an MD or they could be a DO, right? Those are just two different types of medical schools. And then I did a residency. So I trained in adult psychiatry for four years where I was doing inpatient psychiatry in hospitals, consult work in the medical hospitals and doing outpatient psychiatry, learning how to prescribe psychiatric medications and also doing psychotherapy training. So that's a one point to sort of pin and think about. I, I'm licensed and to practice medicine in New York State. I have a DEA license. I can prescribe medications. And that's a, probably one of the most significant differences between psychiatrists and any other type 
type of therapist that we would be talking about in the mental health field, including psychologists who also go by doctor. They have a PhD or a PsyD, but they can't prescribe medications. So that would be like one of the major impactful differences. They didn't go to medical school, so they don't prescribe medications. You have an MD license as well, right? So here's something that comes up also. Why can't I go to my general practitioner? to give me a medication for my anxiety. Absolutely, yeah. And and actually we often see, and primary care doctors are being tasked more and more these days with more mental health becoming an issue, especially in the context of the pandemic. Primary care doctors are often the first people that are prescribing antidepressant medications, anti-anxiety medications. And what I would say about that is it's a great starting place. I think it's super worth talking to somebody that you trust, like your primary care doctor. And they might prescribe you something like a, a pretty standard antidepressant medication. Like you guys have probably all heard of Zoloft and Prozac and those type of medications. But when you start getting into symptoms that are not being targeted by those medications, or you're feeling like you want more expert guidance on what's going on or what you should expect from these medications, it can be really, really helpful to see a psychiatrist. They can tell you a little bit more about what to expect and how to target the medication. So I often find that the upside is that someone's been started or they've been started to think about a medication because their primary care doctor has told them to think about it, that they might be depressed, but often they feel not equipped to sort of help the patient go up on the doses or the patients even want more explanation about what they should expect. And so when someone comes to see me for a consultation, we're talking about all different kinds of medications we might be able to utilize, what you should really expect, why would we be using this medication. So I'm just more expert in psychopharmacology, in knowing what we're targeting, how to target it, what you should expect, and actually how to use medications for both their benefits and their side effects. I use medications that can be a little sedating to help people both with depression and to go to sleep at night versus sometimes doctors don't tell, you know, primary care doctor might not tell you that it's going to make you sedated or sleepy. And then you're saying like, I've had a bad experience with psychiatric medications. I don't want to take them. So I think it's helpful to talk with a psychiatrist or at least have a consultation so you know what to expect instead of having a bad experience with somebody, you know, telling you these don't work for me. Like psychiatric medications don't work for me. A doctor prescribed it and I don't, I didn't feel well. Yeah. Cause that's a really blanket statement that not only really alienates the possibility of something else that really could work much better for you, but it's also kind of very rigidly placing psychiatric medications into a bucket where, you know, we're just going to put this here and put this away. You might really be taking away the opportunity for you to actually feel better. And it sounds like in more than one ways, right? Because I'm hearing, okay, so I've got, you know, this one medication that is going to help you not just with your depression, but with your sleep. And I know, and we'll talk about this too, with GI medications as well, there are some questions sometimes that people have around, well, why did my GI doctor prescribe this particular medication? I'm not depressed, but we know that there are other reasons and other ways that certain medications are used, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really great point that you're making, right? Like, you know, somebody could feel really taken off guard if they are prescribed a psychiatric medication for a different reason. A good example of that is that primary care doctor really, really seem to love antipsychotic medication for sleep. And someone could get really scared if they get put on an antipsychotic or don't know the side effects that could potentially come out of that. Not that it's absolutely wrong all the time that they're doing that, but 
it's sort of something that people can get really thrown off by and confused by. And they really need to be a little bit more aware of what they're taking and what's going on, again, to prevent them from having really bad side effects or prevent them from just not knowing what to expect with the medications and then saying like, I'm done with psychiatry. Like you never started psychiatry. <laughs> yeah. And, and then also the other thing too, that you mentioned was contraindications, right? Sometimes unless you have the specialty or the focus that you have, we can't take for granted that a general practitioner will know the difference. They may be very well-meaning and want to continue to try things, but there might be some contraindications, right? Contraindications for those of you who haven't heard that word before means things that maybe work against each other or that one medication maybe nullifies the effect of the other, things like that, that can be happening. You know, really talking to someone who is an expert in their field and especially when it comes to medication management is so important. The other thing also that comes up often is there is usually a relationship that's built with the doctor. And, you know, especially if it's your family doctor, your long-term doctor, and there's a lot of hesitancy around authority, right? The authority figure and, you know, not really self-advocating. So, you know, can you maybe provide some guidelines around, okay, when is it time for me to say, oh, you know, this maybe is not working or is there some language that you can give people who are listening around how to talk to their providers about it if they feel uncomfortable advocating for themselves. People often feel like if I was really doing poorly, my doctor would have told me that already, right? Like as if your doctor can mind read you and know that you're not doing well, or like they would be able to see that somehow. And I think the thing that people go into any kind of physician is that they think that the doctor is just going to like know the exact questions to ask, and they're going to know exactly what to do. And you really have to be part of your own treatment team in order to get the best medical care that you can. So what I would say is if you do start feeling anxious or depressed and your doctor is open to having that conversation with you, bringing that up each time you come in, you know, I don't, I'm actually not feeling less depressed or I'm still struggling to sleep. Do you think that I need to take a different medication? Do you think that I should see somebody else? And often primary care doctors, they're a little nervous to say, why don't you see a psychiatrist? Because I think it goes both ways that they don't want to make you feel like something's going on with you or that you're too much for them to take care of. But the reality is, again, you know, if they were looking at your heart for an issue, they would refer you to a cardiologist, no question. And you wouldn't have any question about that either. So I think it shouldn't be a thought that's different about your mental health and your brain health and what's going on with you. It's just a matter of, can you speak up to your doctor and say, I'm not feeling better. What should I do now? And that you might be open to seeing a psychiatrist or someone else who's more specialized in mental health, instead of sort of hoping that your doctor every six months might be able to catch something that's going on with you, right? That's the other piece you have to remember primary care doctors, how often do we get to talk to our primary care doctor more than like 15 minutes? Really, that's the way medicine is now. And you really have to be in and out. And it's it's uh, not that the doctors want to do that. They just happen to be on that really strict time restriction. So it's worth saying if you feel like you're not getting enough time to talk about the antidepressant medication, the anti-anxiety medication, that also might be a trigger in your mind to say, you know, could you refer me to a psychiatrist so that I could talk more about this? I end up seeing my patients for 45 minutes and follow up no matter what, even if we're just doing medication, because it's important to really discuss that, talk about it, destigmatize taking the medication. 
And I feel like patients have a better outcome when they really understand what they're putting into their body and what they're taking. So 45 minutes, that's not usual though, for someone seeing psychiatrists as a therapist, as an LCSW, I typically see people 50 minutes, right? And sometimes I get people to say, oh, I only saw my psychiatrist for 15 minutes and they don't want to see me more than once a month. And there's this confusion around what the expectation is supposed to be. That you're thinking, well, we're going to see our psychiatrist for the same amount of time that we see you. And they're looking at the costs involved and all of this stuff. And so they're saying what's going on. And before they know it, they're trying to go from psychiatrist to psychiatrist. So can we talk a little bit about what people should expect? Because 45 minutes is not usual, right? So we're in New York, we're in Manhattan. So it's a little bit of a bubble as far as mental health goes as well. We're sort of saturated with psychiatrists here and the coast sort of have that benefit. Whereas in the Midwest or in the South, there's a lot fewer. And I guess, you know, one thing I would say is, which is a really serious problem in mental health is that insurance really does not reimburse mental health services for even psychiatrists. I'll see what my bill was and the, the percentage that the insurance pays back. And it could be really good, you know, if they have a good insurance plan, but it could also be like 10%. And mental health parity is really not caught up to, to be seen as something that's important for your overall well-being and health and how to decrease insurance costs long term, right? We know depression impacts people's physical health. We know that it impacts work days and like lost costs of companies and things like that. And yet people really don't get reimbursed or benefits to see, to see a psychiatrist. So I think the the issue is that in psychiatry, if you are taking insurance, it really cost benefit wise, and this is just the reality of medicine, you can't see somebody more than 15 minutes because you have to see as many patients as you can, similar to primary care. You know, if you don't take insurance, so for my practice, I don't take insurance, which I know is more the standard in Manhattan, but it's also hard for patients and they have to rely on their out of network benefits. But I get to practice the way that I think is the best suited for the patient. And I guess that's sort of the benefit that the patient gets as well, that, you know, they're seeing me for 45 minutes, they get 45 minutes of my time at any interval that we together decide makes sense. So it could be monthly if they're really doing well, but it might also be every other week or weekly that I'm seeing somebody, especially if I'm seeing them for psychotherapy as well, to get 45 minutes, it really generally is not an insurance-based practice. And so you mentioned also that you also do psychotherapy, which is why I say that you are a unicorn, right? Because <laughs> So this is the other thing too, that people are expecting, they hear the word psych in psychiatry and they're expecting therapy. Not all the time, but a lot of times there is this expectation that why was I in and out for, you know, 15 minutes. So thank you for explaining that because there is a huge issue with insurance companies and mental health providers. I think the general public is not really aware of all of the issues that happen with insurance companies, all of the things that we as providers are subjected to. If you do uh, go in network with an insurance company, you know, things such as clawbacks and audits and them really being able to say, oh, you know what? We've decided that this person really didn't need all this for the last year. You owe us thousands of dollars back. These are realities of things that happen and we're hoping and pushing for insurance companies to be more supportive of mental health because at the end of the day, we are the ones who suffer, generally speaking, and our clients, right? Our clients suffer, they're not getting what they need. And we as providers are looked at like, you know, we're terrible people because we're not taking insurance, but you know, there are so many limitations. I mean, if I could be on every insurance panel 
and be able to actually make a living and, you know, not have to hire 50 therapists in order to do that, I would be happy to do that. So glad that you're tuning in. This is just a quick reminder that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not replace treatment by a licensed professional. Ready to hear more? Here you go. It's not even just the therapist, right? You have to hire billers. Like hospital systems have entire departments that go after insurance companies and they only still get percentages of the money back. So to make it as cost effective as I possibly can, I can't take insurance. It's just not even, it's not a possibility for me because I was trained in medicine and psychiatry. I was not trained in figuring out how to do billing for insurance companies. And as confusing as it is to patients, it's funny, you know, they always ask for my help with navigating and it's like, you you know, I, I have the same issues with my own insurance, right? Like I, I'm a medical doctor and it's hard to navigate insurance. So that just tells you how difficult insurance companies really make it for patients to get quality care. And I, you know, I could go on and on in my soapbox about insurance companies. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem in America to be able to get good insurance, to, you know, not break the bank paying for your insurance plan. And I think when people, you know, do that, they're paying potentially on the open market $2,000 a month for their insurance plan. They don't want to also pay out-of-pocket mental health. And those plans don't cover mental health, to be frank. I get it. I don't think people are reasonable. I think they are reasonable and insurance companies aren't. But it's also um, to get good quality care. Unfortunately, it tends to be out-of-pocket, at least in the East Coast and the West Coast, probably. Yeah. And, and some, um, that's the other thing too, that people don't know. They might you know, be dealing with some issue that if it's not considered medically necessary, insurance companies will not cover for it. And speaking of themes and issues that come up, what are the top three things that you're seeing that come through in your practice? You focus on GI health, you focus on making that connection with medical health. Can you tell me a little bit about what comes through? So I guess the biggest three sort of major buckets that are going on in my practice, one is chronic illness, right? So like dealing with either the depression and anxiety that inherently come from chronic illness and the medications that are used to treat those chronic illnesses. So that could be migraines, migraine medication, how that impacts your life, GI, GI medications, how that impacts your life. Bucket number two is probably the sort of these, um, you know, I say it as a psychiatrist, the standard anxiety and depression, obviously no one's anxiety and depression is standard, but treating sort of more straightforward with cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and using plus or minus medications, right, in my practice for anxiety, depression symptoms, a significant amount of obsessional anxiety, I guess, would go into that bucket as well. Often people think they have OCD, but they actually have obsessional anxiety symptoms or ADHD symptoms that we're sort of uncovering and understanding more. And then the third bucket, I would say, is more of talking about life planning. I see a mix of patients, but a lot of my female patients right now, especially with the pandemic delaying our lives a little bit, um, you know, thinking about how they're going back into the dating world, how they're thinking about um, getting into relationships or considering freezing their eggs. That's actually been a huge thing that I've been talking about with patients right now with the delays in life from the pandemic. So just thinking about like making life decisions, assertiveness in your life and your work, making those kind of career type of decisions by using psychotherapy and, and just sort of coaching through that and thinking about how you want to live your best life, really. We are also seeing a lot of these three areas. It's interesting, the obsessional anxiety that you mentioned, 
That is something that's come up more. We actually did an episode uh, on OCD recently, and we talked about these different obsessions, but we didn't talk about, you know, medication management and how that can be helpful. We talked a little bit about neurotransmitters in the brain, but, you know, we really didn't get into this. So this is, I'm glad that you're bringing this up. This is a a, a nice tie-in to that episode as well, so that uh, people know that you don't have to have OCD in order to have obsessional anxiety. So this is a great point that you're bringing up. Absolutely. And I think that one of the major differences is that there's this, you probably talked about this in your SD episode, the ego syntonic versus ego dystonic. So ego syntonic means it's like kind of okay with you. Like you, you understand it and you're with it. You know, nobody's like super excited to have anxiety, but they're familiar with their anxiety and they're familiar with the obsessions that come up with their anxiety. True OCD is extremely ego dystonic. So patients are really disturbed by their OCD. It's not just a, oh, I like need to check because I feel like it. They really can't stop. They really struggle. And often patients with OCD describe it as a feeling inherently that they get once they have checked something or counted to a certain number, it finally feels settled to them, but they don't like that. They're not happy to wash their hands a thousand times. If I said to them, I waved a magic wand and I could get rid of this symptom for you, would you? OCD patients would say, absolutely, please like get rid of this. Obsessional anxiety patients often have a harder time sort of feeling that buy-in to getting rid of it because their anxiety makes them believe it's really necessary in a lot of ways. And, you know, OCD patients can feel some of that necessity to that as well. But I I would say that it's, again, more debilitating to them. They really can't live their lives with OCD, whereas obsessional anxiety comes across more as like, I'm anxious, but I'm still going to work. I'm still holding down a relationship. I'm still able to do a lot of these things. Usually patients with significant OCD struggle with a lot of that. Thank you for describing that because again, it's one of those topics that I think a lot of people are familiar with generally on a daily basis and kind of going through their lives, but not really understanding the nuances, the differences. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up and you were able to elaborate. Now that kind of brings me to medications to prescribe, right? Because we've talked about chronic illness and we've talked about anxiety and depression and life planning. What are some of the more commonly prescribed psychiatric medications? And then also how do you decide when, I mean, I know that's a real really loaded and, you know, general question, but maybe within the realm of those three areas, if you can just give us an example. Sure. And and I guess to say also, you know, this idea of when and why is important because, you know, as you were saying before, you hear psych and you think therapy, but when people come to a psychiatrist and MD, they're assuming that I'm going to immediately prescribe them the medication that's going to like make it go away. Right. So you go to your primary care doctor, you have high blood pressure, you take a medication, you don't think about it anymore. Your blood pressure is better. Maybe you make a few lifestyle changes, but generally speaking, medications that target high blood pressure are much more concrete. Right? They're very like black and white. It's a kind of you either decrease your blood pressure or it's not. The tricky part with psychiatric medications is our brain is the most complicated organ in our body, right? We still are figuring out the brain right now. We call psychiatry more of a gray science, more of a gray area. And generally people who are in psychiatry are more able to tolerate that. You know, I I could say, I usually tell patients, this may take a couple of tries, right? We may have to figure out what receptors really make sense for your brain. And I say that preemptively because I feel like patients experiencing medicine in general often get this idea from a doctor that take this, you'll feel better. 
And that's really not the case in psychiatry all the time. Like, you know, of course, that's my goal. I want you to feel better. But within the realm of expectations that make sense for you, that I'm not going to take away the fact that you're getting a divorce, that's still going to be stressful. That would be stressful to anybody. Or that you had a major medical diagnosis. These medications don't wipe your memory and you don't have to think about that anymore. We use medications, uh, the way to describe it to patients is that we're trying to create a bit more of an armor, right? I want to pull down the intensity of your anxiety. I want to pull down the intensity of your depression so that you can better engage in psychotherapy because that's really where the long-term work happens. Usually I don't keep patients on, especially if they're, you know, dealing with their first episode of anxiety or depression. The studies and the research shows that about a year is what helps to prevent relapse of those symptoms. If you've gotten full remission of those symptoms, different than bipolar disorder, where you might have to be on medications long-term, that's important to keep in mind and schizophrenia or any kind of psychotic disorder. Those are very different. But in outpatient psychiatry, in these buckets of patients that we're talking about, we're really thinking more about how to help you have more resilience, how to help you engage in the work that's going to help cognitively restructure the patterns and the behaviors that you're having on a daily basis. This is such a great explanation for people that you just given, because again, it's one of these areas that we don't think about that everything might help within its own realm, but not everything is going to be the magic pill, right? Medications have their limitations, right? Like medications, maybe in some cases can help take the edge off, like in some of the things that you described, but then the long-term work, the psychotherapy work, right? The cognitive behavioral therapy, the talk therapy, a narrative, whatever type of therapy it is that then is going to help you to retrain your brain, reframe and, and teach you the different coping skills and strategies. Medication can't do that. That's where you've got that bridge where, you know, we need to decide, okay, so this is helping and now I'm ready to do more because sometimes if your anxiety is bad enough, right? If it's chronic enough, you might be going to therapy on a weekly basis, psychotherapy and doing all the work and it's still just not sticking. And if that anxiety is so high that it's just not allowing you to integrate the work, maybe it's time for, you know, some medication. Often I find that, you know, all that work that you put in, you start taking a medication and then the work sort of sinks in for you, right? You, your brain still held on to it. It was just really difficult to employ until your intensity of your anxiety was down a bit. And, you know, to just say the opposite, right? Like if you're experiencing a benefit from the medications and then you say, well, I'm going to quit psychotherapy, that's also, we don't want you to do that, right? The combination is the work. It might feel like an investment, but it's an investment forever because you can get better from it with this combination of psychotherapy and medications. And, you know, people often say, well, I talk to myself about it all the time. And it's different when you're talking to yourself versus having a therapist really reflecting this back to you or saying some of those hard truths that you might not really want to like say to yourself or that your mom might not say to you. Right. So the idea that, you know, once you start feeling better, that's really when you got to get in there and dig in with the work, because that's where the long-term benefit is going to come out. So, so it's really important to maintain both and to do both things and probably worth getting a, an opinion from a psychiatrist earlier, right? Like if a medication could help you, then, you know, you don't want to be spinning your wheels for two years in psychotherapy when, you know, you might get benefit out of it and be doing both at the same time. So it's really worth at least get a consultation or at least get an idea of what you might be able to utilize 
it's not, you're not signing over your life. You don't have to take a medication if you don't want to. It's worth understanding what your options are though. I'm very visual. I'm a very visual thinker. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about trailheads, right? Like when you're going on a trail, you're going hiking, you start off here. And then as you go on that trail, you're not going to know what's out there or what you're going to discover until you actually go down the path. And what do we say to people that are afraid of maybe addiction or maybe abusing? Are there medications that are specific to mental health that are abused? You know, and I don't know if I'm even framing that right, but, you know, just wanting to talk a little bit about the fears around abuse and addiction. I hear it all the time. And it also, it makes me wonder if people think that psychiatrists have some sort of buy-in, like they want you to be like stuck on a medication. But in general, no, I tell my patients, I would love it if you know you didn't need to see me anymore. That's the best outcome. You don't have to see me anymore. There are some medications that can cause um, physiological dependence, right? So physiologic dependence versus abuse are different things, right? Because physiologic dependence, your body gets used to something and then you might have withdrawal from it. Whereas abuse, use is that you're using it for a different reason than it's prescribed. Like we think about that with opiates, right? Those are theoretically for pain. People take them to self-medicate for mood symptoms or to, you know, get high or whatever to feel different than they currently feel. Physiological dependence can happen, both can happen in psychiatric medications. And I would say that's actually even more of a reason to go see a psychiatrist, ideally, who is seeing you for longer than 15 minutes, potentially, because primary care doctors often are prescribing something that's going to make you feel better right away. Again, it's not a dig on primary care doctors, but something like a benzodiazepine. So that category of drugs would be like Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Valium. People take those and they suddenly feel, oh, I feel better. Like that took away my anxiety. But unfortunately, those medications actually don't do anything as far as restructuring your cognitive neuroreceptors and, and your brain. It's not changing. The medication has to be there in order for you to have the effect which is why it ends up being that people get physiologically dependent on things like Ativan or Xanax. Xanax is the worst offender probably because people take it, it feels really good right away. And what they often feel is that there's a rebound anxiety, right? So it's on in 30 minutes, it's off in 30 minutes, and then suddenly you have even worse anxiety, it seems, because it comes out of your system like a bullet out of a gun, right? It's out of your system. But the idea that, you know, then you have to take more and then you have to take more and then your body develops this threshold to the medication where you have to keep asking for higher doses. So that is a category of medications that actually I only prescribe for very short amounts of time or for like flight anxiety. Somebody's taking it once in a while and that's all they're taking it for. Whereas SSRI medications, SNRI medications, those are the sort of major classes of antidepressants. That's like the Zoloft Prozac or SNRIs are like the Cymbalta effect type of medications that often are used in chronic pain as well, or migraine or fibromyalgia. Those medications don't result in physiologic dependence. You don't require more and more of the dose and it's a daily medication. It's not causing any kind of addiction properties. People can feel a withdrawal when it's coming out of their system because their body's just adjusting to seeing less of the medication resulting in higher serotonin, higher norepinephrine. So people can feel like they're withdrawing from it, but it's not a dangerous withdrawal the way that like Valium or uh, Ativan or Xanax could come out of your system and result in you having a serious withdrawal, including seizures and dying. So the lesson here is don't stop taking anything on your own, right? (laughs) Because you don't really know, right? What is going to give you or result in a dangerous withdrawal course versus what's not. 
Right. And I think being open with your doctor, like you are part of your treatment team, right? So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I really just don't want to, I don't feel comfortable taking this medication anymore. It's not in my best interest to demand that they take this medication. I don't have any buy-in to them taking it or not. It's that I want them to feel better. And if they already cannot feel better because they don't want to take the medication period, then I'm happy to take them off of the medication. That also is an important thing to be seeing a psychiatrist if you're coming off of like a higher dose of an antidepressant because it's tough when you're withdrawing. Sometimes I prescribe a different medication to help aid in that sensation. I might use a compounding pharmacy where I'm doing smaller and smaller doses of the medications that are actually manufactured. It's really requires somebody who knows what those symptoms could be like instead of just sort of saying like, yeah, just stop taking it. You'll feel better. People can't tolerate that all the time. And it's worth being able to talk about that and having someone to ping back to to say like, I'm really struggling with this coming off this medication. And what about holistic, right? Can we combine holistic practices with medication to help efficacy? Just, you know, somebody feeling more capable and more in control of their bodies and their symptoms right? Are there any holistic practices that you would recommend? I think it's important and probably part of your treatment plan to be doing things that might otherwise seem holistic, but, you know, exercise can be a holistic practice that you're doing, you're engaging in, you know, doing yoga has a lot of cognitive therapy in it. If you know cognitive therapy and you listen to yoga instructors, you're like, oh, that's a CBT technique. They're, you know, doing those things is really important to feel that mind-body connection that really helps you be grounded, that helps to decrease anxiety and depression symptoms. A lot of my patients, especially Especially with chronic pain, with chronic illness, they're going to acupuncture, they're doing massage therapy, they might be, you know, doing different techniques like that, which I think are totally great. I so I totally encourage that. The one thing that I want to be transparent with, and I'm certainly not against, but taking any kind of supplementation, like over the counter supplements, or any kind of herbal medicine, it's important to be honest with your doctor about what you're taking. Because unfortunately, a some of those medications can interact with our medications and B, they're just not FDA monitored. So we don't know, you know, you could be taking a supplemental medication that's causing you a side effect. And here, here I am prescribing you Lexapro, you have a bad effect, but it wasn't the Lexapro. And now you have a bad feeling about psychiatric medication, right? And I think the biggest culprit there, which I think people are more and more aware of, but just worth saying is that, that this medication called St. John's Wort, it's a medication that often people are taking for anxiety. And I think I'm seeing it more in these like startup companies that are saying like, take this chewable, whatever, you'll feel relaxed. It's called like literally just relax and like it could be in there. So if you're taking anything like that, bring the bottles to your first appointment, look it over. It's not always possible to do drug checks on these because they're just not in the pharmaceutical registries, but it's worth talking about it and making sure there's nothing that's obviously going to interact with your medications from what we know and that you don't end up having a really bad reaction because you were just trying to, you know, take a medication that's going to help you relax on top of whatever else you were getting prescribed. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I was also thinking about CBD oils and CBD products. That's the other thing that came up for me now, because that's really what people are kind of taking like gummy bears, like literally CBD gummy bears, you know, and things like that, that can be helpful. But again, we're talking about really becoming a part of your treatment plan. And just, I want to just kind of bring up what you said before, if you have problems or issues or feel embarrassed or hesitant to talk to your doctor, maybe letting them know that something's not working. You can maybe reframe that for yourself, right? 
and make that doctor human. And remember that they cannot read your mind. Your doctors are human beings. They're not mind readers. They're going to get it wrong. They're supposed to get things wrong because they're humans. And if you can just help your doctor out by giving them regular feedback, giving them updates on your symptoms, you're not challenging authority. You're actually helping them. And if you come across a doctor that, you know, is not open to that feedback, then maybe it's time to consider going somewhere else. Absolutely. And I think bringing up things or or wondering if something is making an impact and being able to have an open conversation is incredibly important. The one caveat I would say is that, you know, if you are demanding something from your doctor, like I've had patients say like, I only want Valium, but I don't prescribe that, right? Like it's, it's always, you know, the doctor has to feel comfortable with what they are prescribing, but having an open conversation should always be on the table about why they will or won't prescribe something or what they think their rationale is. They should be able to explain to you why they think that it would be beneficial for you. And if you're willing to try it, great. If you're not, that's okay too. You know, I think it's just that patients often sort of, they only want a small dose of something or they only want, you know, so be open to hearing what the conversation is. If you're going to take a medication, take it so that it's therapeutic and effective for you. And if you don't want to do that, the door is open, right? Like you don't have to decide right then and there. And if a doctor wants you to decide right then and there, I think that's a good question of, you know, well, let me sleep on it. Feel like you can say, I'd like to think about it and not have to immediately take the medication if you don't really know if you're comfortable with it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Just open dialogue and communication is the best way to get the best care for yourself. So, you know, we're almost at the end of our time here and I know this sadly. And so I wanted to ask you if you can give people here something to think about that they can walk away with one aspect of psychiatry that you want to debunk, demystify, or destigmatize, what do you want to say to people? What would you like people to leave with? Since I'm in the the medically complex world and I'm dealing with a lot of patients that have that, especially in the time right now of COVID and, and like people having chronic issues from that, I guess one thing I would say is to not assume that you need to muster through and to, to have to deal with it on your own, right? There are ways to target these symptoms that you're having. The expectation if you have a chronic illness is not that you are supposed to have a smile on your face and just walk it off. It's totally fine and it's really reasonable and it's really responsible to get some psychological help for that because no one was born to deal with having a chronic illness, which includes depression and anxiety, by the way. No one was born to deal with having a chronic issue and to just deal with that on their own without any support. We can all benefit from support. If you can get it, if you can go to therapy, if you can see a psychiatrist, try it out because it probably isn't going to be as scary as you think it's going to be. And hopefully, you know, just listening to this podcast, hearing me, that can help open up that door and make people feel like it is a reasonable next step to take. So, you know, don't feel like you have to do it on your own. And I actually feel a little warm and fuzzy as I talk to you, not going to lie. (laughs) (laughs) So... Dr. Claire, Brandon, everyone, uh, can you please tell us how to find you if people want to reach out to you, website, social media, email? Absolutely. So my two Instagrams, so one is my name, Claire Brandon MD, and you can look me up on Instagram and, and reach out there. Um, I have my podcast is the GI Psychiatrist. As you mentioned, it's on Apple and Spotify and everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And I have a corresponding Instagram with that for uh, the GI Psychiatrist. And you can also go to my website, which is www 
claireBrandonMD.com, and you can send me a message through that if you'd like a consultation or set up an appointment. It's an easy way to get in touch with me and uh, definitely look forward to hearing from anybody that has questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. We are so grateful. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. And so many people are going to get so much out of this. Thank you so much. And as always, everyone, if you want to know more about our practice or this podcast, please be sure to head over to cohesivetherapynyc.com forward slash podcast to check out the show notes. There you'll be able to find resources, links, and how to get in touch and more information on Dr. Claire Brandon. So I look forward to seeing you next time when I ask again. So how's therapy? 